After Robert murdered Kathy, along with their father and sister, Douglas and Tom lawyered up, closed ranks, and helped Robert cover up Kathy's murder. I didn't write the cadaver note. Whoever wrote that note had to be involved in Susan's death. Bob got to Los Angeles, and he went to Susan's house, went in, and he found Susan's body. Before he left, he wrote an anonymous note and sent it to the Beverly Hills police. Before his lawyers could get there, Mr. Lewin and his crew got there and started questioning him at early in the morning. In that statement that there's something inappropriate, Mr. is well aware we began this second season of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by offering the first two parts in our three-part series about the life of Durst's best friend and alleged victim, Susan Berman. Next week, we will bring you the final part of that series. But with Durst's trial resuming last week after a 14-month delay, we will dedicate this episode to telling you how the parties approached restarting their arguments. In fact, the first major Durst-related event of last week happened across the country from L.A. in New York. On the morning of Monday, May 17th, as the Los Angeles jury got in their cars and drove to a courthouse for the first time in over a year, a lawyer representing Kathy Durst's family held a press conference in Westchester, going public with allegations against members of the Durst family and the Durst organization. After Robert murdered Kathy, along with their father and sister, Douglas and Tom lawyered up, closed ranks, and helped Robert cover up Kathy's murder. The next day, Westchester District Attorney Mimi Roca made her first public statement since reopening the investigation into Kathy Durst's disappearance. At the time that this alleged homicide occurred, um, you know, there were, we did not have the same understanding of domestic violence and how um, that kind of abuse could play into relationships. So we will investigate this. I mean, obviously, it is challenging to do it after um, so long, and we want to do it right. Meanwhile, in Los Angeles, despite repeated attempts by the defense team to delay or dismiss the trial, on Tuesday, May 18, the prosecution and defense represented their opening statements, this time in a substantially abbreviated form. These opening statements are essentially case summaries that allow both the prosecution and the defense to give the jurors an overview of how each side will structure the stories that they will tell the jury. If you are interested in a far more detailed preview of how these sides plan to try this case, check out season one of this audio series. Last week, John Lewin for the prosecution and Dick DeGaron for the defense condensed their original presentations to two hours each. What follows is a distillation of those openings. And then, before we move on to our roundtable discussion of the week's proceedings, we include a couple of significant events that occurred at the very beginning of this restart. We'll bring you all of that after the break. Hold up. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Deputy DA John Lewin started his reopening by getting straight to what appeared to be the most damning pieces of evidence against Robert Durst. The killer left a note what's been commonly referred to as the cadaver note. Now, what has Mr. Durst's position been over the years when he has been interviewed, when he has testified under oath? This is what he said in 2010. Well, to begin with, you didn't write the, write the cadaver note, is that what you said? I didn't write the cadaver note. In 2012, he was asked again the same thing. So, I guess the question is, did you write the cadaver note? No, I didn't write the cadaver note. In 2015, after he was arrested and he was interviewed in New Orleans, you agree you did not just find Susan's body and somebody else killed her? I did not find Susan's body. So, Mr. Durst makes clear he did not write the cadaver note and he did not find Susan's body. That was his position until a couple of weeks before trial started, he admitted in a stipulation, yes, I wrote the cadaver note. But that's not the only thing about the cadaver note that becomes important. Because in 2012, Mr. Durst made clear. You're writing a note to the police that only the killer could have written. In 2015, the issue comes up again during his interview. What does he say? Whoever wrote the note was a part of killing her. Yes. You, you agree, right? Yes. No question, right? Whoever wrote that note had to be involved in Susan's death. As Lewin noted, Robert Durst's lawyers acknowledged in stipulations filed 18 months ago that Durst did in fact find Susan Berman's body and in fact wrote the cadaver note. Defense attorney David Chesnoff also acknowledged this verbally in the defense team's first opening statement last year. Yes, Bob found the body of Susan Berman on December 23, 2000, and he notified police of her body as he wrote what the prosecution calls the cadaver note. In the defense team's second opening statement, Dick DeGuerin took a shot at trying to reframe that narrative. Bob got to Los Angeles, and he went to Susan's house, the front door was locked, nobody answered. He went around to the side and the back door was open and he went in and he found Susan's body. And he freaked out. The phone had been disconnected. And Bob left, but before he left and drove back up to San Francisco, he wrote a note, an anonymous note, and sent it to the Beverly Hills police. 
John Lewin indicated that he will establish that Durst, by his own admission, was physically abusive towards his wife, Kathy, especially in the last month before she disappeared. On January 6, 1982, this is less than a month before she would disappear. Kathy was demeaned enough where she had to go to the emergency room at the same medical school where she was training to become a doctor. Humiliating, degrading. She had an injury to her face. Lewin then indicated that Durst was the last person to see Kathy alive and that she was in an agitated state when she went to their South Salem home just before her disappearance. But what we do know is that on Sunday, January 31st, 1982, they were together at their lakeside cottage in South Salem, New York. Kathy drove over to Gilberta's house. And we know that while Kathy was there, that she had a very disturbing conversation with the photographer who Bob Durst had beaten. And she was very upset. And she returns to the South Salem Cottage that evening. And we know that they argued. They had a violent physical argument. So the next day is Monday, February 1st. Kathy was to begin her first day of ambulatory uh, at the pediatric clinic at Bronx Memorial Hospital. So she's got every incentive to really be on top of her game. Well, what happens? Kathy never makes it to the clinic and she has never been seen since. Lewin then sought to establish Durst's motive for killing Berman by alleging that Berman had secretly helped Durst cover up his killing of his first wife, Kathy. Now on Monday morning, Kathy purportedly called Dr. Cooperman, who was an associate dean between nine and 11, and informed him that she had diarrhea and would not be made to school that day. Now remember, she's almost a doctor. They are expecting you to be there. You have responsibilities. You're gonna call the attending or another resident in that service. You're gonna tell them I'm not gonna be here. But the evidence is gonna show that Bob Durst had no choice because he didn't know where Kathy was. So he had to call Dean Cooper. He had to call the medical school because he didn't know what rotation to call. That's what the evidence will show. Now during the original investigation, Dr. Cooperman assumed that it was Kathy he had spoken to on the phone because the person identified themselves as Kathy. Now, if Kathy didn't make the phone call to Dean Cooperman, who did? Well, we know who did. Because shortly after the call to Dean Cooperman was made, and multiple times over the years, Susan admitted to making that call or providing an alibi, and she did this to a number of her friends. Now, she didn't tell every friend the same thing. But in the end, what she was clear about was that she made up an alibi to help Bob Durst, and she told several people, and you'll hear from them, that she actually called, she called Dean Cooperman pretending to be Kathy. Lewin also alleges that within a week of his wife's disappearance, Durst acted as though she was gone for good. Now on February 8th, a week after Kathy disappeared, Karen Minatello, who was the manager at East 86th Street, discovers all of Kathy's belongings in the trash. So 
allegedly, Kathy disappears, and Mr. Durst finds out about it on February 4th. There are different stages that people go through, you know, denial, questioning, anger, et cetera, acceptance. Mr. Durst went straight from Kathy's disappeared to, well, I guess she's dead and not coming back. He throws away all her stuff, so much so they jammed up the trash. Her medical books are in there. She's still in school. She's still studying. She's going to have boards eventually to take, and it's all gone. Lewin later alleged that 18 years later, as the investigation into Kathy's death was reopened by a Westchester district attorney, Durst became concerned that Susan's lack of discretion and her financial distress might lead her to incriminate him in Kathy's death. Although the evidence would suggest that Susan never would have intentionally done anything to hurt Bob Durst, she was playing with fire. Bob Durst was giving her lots of money. Was he giving her that money because they were close friends? Well, the evidence is going to show that's not how he treated his other friends. Or was he giving her the money because in the end, there are some people in your life that you need to make sure, no matter what, that they are satisfied with your relationship. Lewin ultimately alleged that Durst's concerns about Susan's indiscretion reached a critical point around Christmas of 2000. And eventually, whether it was the money he was paying, or more than likely, the threat that she just was going to expose him, that's a loose end he needed to tie up, and that's what he did. The evidence is going to show that Mr. Durst did not want to kill Susan Berman. He didn't kill her out of hatred. He didn't kill her out of revenge. He didn't kill her because he disliked her. He killed her out of survival. He believed it was her or me. I had no choice. Lewin then set up the piece of evidence that helped make the documentary series The Jinx an international sensation, the infamous bathroom audio, in which Robert Durst begins to speak to himself as he enters a bathroom, unaware that the microphone that he is wearing is recording his utterances. Now, during the interviews, Durst admitted how frequently he would talk to himself. And on multiple occasions during the filming, he was literally caught talking to himself on film. His lawyer, who was present for some of the interviews, had to tell him, Bob, they can hear what you're saying. But towards the conclusion, he walks in the bathroom. Now, there's been a lot, and the evidence is going to show, that in the jinx, Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling absolutely edited the recordings. And you can think what you want about that, etc., but you're listening to the unedited. And before the door can even close in the bathroom, while Bob Durst is still wearing his mic, just listen, you'll hear the door close. This is what happens. You're right, this is the bathroom. There it is, your court. You can hear Bob Durst gets into that bathroom and before the door even closes, he realizes, uh-oh, there it is, you're caught. Moments later, he's going to say this. Killed them all, of course. Killed them all, of course. And finally, Lewin presents the recorded testimony of Durst's and Berman's mutual friend, 
Nick Chaven, who offers evidence of Robert Durst's alleged motive for killing Susan Berman and a confession of sorts. The evidence will show that this is not the first damaging statement Mr. Durst had given. After numerous interviews, his very close friend, Nick Chaven, who the evidence will show was trying to protect Bob Durst, did not want to speak to us at all, ultimately recounted what happened after the dinner he had with his close friend, Bob Durst, in late 2014. Dinner concluded, and it was then that I, as we got up to leave, I realized that we hadn't discussed the two things that he had mentioned, Kathy and Susan. I felt kind of weird that I didn't bring it up. We walked out the door. This is hard. We walked out the door, and on the sidewalk, I said, you wanted to talk about Susan. And Bob said, I had to. It was her or me. I had no choice. And then he turned to walk away and I said, you wanted to talk about Kathy. And he just kept walking away. Nothing more was said. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Dick DeGaron spoke for the defense, somewhat awkwardly reasserting David Chesnoff's mantra from last year, no evidence is evidence. Bob Durst did not kill Susan Berman, and he doesn't know who did. The evidence, the lack of evidence, is what we will be talking about. DeGaron tried to counter Lewin's theory for why Durst allegedly killed Susan, that she helped him cover up his murder of Kathy by pretending to be Kathy in a call to the dean of Kathy's medical school. So there was a small window of time between the evening of January 31st and the morning of February 1st when Dean Cooperman got the call and the evidence, there is no evidence that Bob Durst talked to Susan Berman in that window of time. The first evidence of any contact between Bob Durst and Susan Berman will come on about February the 6th after the call to Dean Dean Cooperman. DeGaron tried to further counter Lewin's theory by asserting that Kathy Durst had an accent that was inimitable. Obviously, you you speak uh, in what I would term a Long Island accident, accent. And she said, yes. And I asked, well, did Kathy speak that way also? She said, yes. There will be evidence that Dean Cooperman saw nothing unusual in Kathy's accent, and you will also hear evidence that Susan Berman had a strong accent, and it wasn't a Long Island accent. The defense also indicated that they would try to build a case that the Durst family got Kathy into medical school, that Kathy Durst was a cocaine addict, and that a cocaine hangover was the reason for her calling in sick to her medical school, and perhaps for her disappearance. Kathy 
went to nursing school and from there was encouraged to go to medical school. She applied to maybe a dozen different medical schools. The only one that she was able to get into was Einstein. Now, I say the only one, that doesn't mean that it's not a good medical school. In fact, it's an excellent medical school with an excellent reputation. The evidence will show. And some of the founders of Einstein were the Durst family. The evidence will show that Bob helped Kathy go to medical school. He was proud of her being in medical school. Now, Kathy's in medical school, and the evidence will show that she had trouble in med medical school. Not that Kathy wasn't smart, but that Kathy had a drug problem. Her friends will say that. Her family will say that. They were worried about her. She, had, she used cocaine. Mrs. Durst was unable to attend a large part of the clerkship, mostly due to ill health. There will be no evidence that Kathy had ill health. There will be evidence that she used cocaine. DeGuerin then sought to undermine the credibility of Susan's statements to others regarding what she did for Bob by planting seeds of doubt about her relationship with the truth. The evidence will show all of her friends talk about Susan's phobias and Susan's neuroses and, and Susan's fabulism, fabulism, confabulism. And that's an eight-cylinder words, meaning she made things up. She was a writer. She had a great imagination. And she told different stories and embellished different stories to different people. She told lies day in and day out. Then DeGuerin touched upon the dismemberment of Morris Black. In contrast to Lewin, who asserted that Black's death was part of Durst's need to protect his identity, DeGuerin asserted that Durst's clumsy dismemberment and discarding of Black's body was evidence that he was not capable of engaging in the kind of complex cover-up that the prosecution alleges. Galveston Bay, though, is very murky water. It looks kind of like a, a cup of coffee with cream in it. It's just you can't see two inches into the water. Clearly, the dismemberment occurred after death but there was no head. And of course, the police carefully examined the contents of all the bags that they found. They found one bag that was empty. It had blood in it, but it had a large slit at the bottom. We believe the evidence will be persuasive that that's the bag that the head was in, but it came out and it was washed away by the tide. Nobody ever found the head. That gun and the clip that it had been in it, and the empty cartridge, and the extra clip that was fully loaded in the bags, along with other evidence of who he was, clues. There was blood in the apartment still. There was DNA that the police found. There was blood in his car from the bags as they leaked when he put them in his car. There was clues everywhere, hundreds of clues, significantly different from whoever killed Susan Berman, significantly different from the disappearance without a trace of Kathy Durst. There was no blood, no DNA, no fingerprints, no murder weapon of any kind. It was and is a mystery. Just before concluding his remarks, DeGuerin returned to his theme that the absence of evidence is somehow meaningful evidence in this case. There is no evidence, no forensic evidence, none, 
that Bob Durst killed Susan Berman. Was she murdered? Yes. Who did it? That's not our burden. That's not your burden. It's not a process of elimination. It's not, if not Bob, who did it? It's, if not Bob, it's not guilty. There was one particularly dramatic conflict between the prosecution and the defense that arose when DeGuerin characterized John Lewin's 2015 interrogation of Durst as having been conducted, quote, before his lawyers could get there, end quote. Before his lawyers could get there, Mr. Lewin and his crew got there and started questioning him at early in the morning. In that statement that there's something inappropriate, Mr. DeGuerin is well aware that the okay, court has made on, numerous rulings. I'm okay. not going to let it stand. Then, once the jury had left the courtroom, the two sides argued about what the judge would say to the jury regarding Lewin's interrogation of Durst. So there, there's a very, I think, a delicate balance to impugn the integrity or the ethics of the lawyers on the other side, I will not allow. The circumstances under which that interview took place are fair game. In other words, the fact that he, though he waived his rights, he did not have a lawyer, fair game. But the suggestion of this was was not. Your Honor, it needs to be said, it is ethical, that is a true statement of law, and the court has previously said this in motion. Your Honor, I'm not going to have my integrity impugned continually, okay. so just think for a second, Your Honor, they don't want you to say now, it's ethical. Now you're starting to uh, act I'm sorry, contrary to your, to your good character. Because you are, you are, you are, you are usurping my role. Your Honor, what you will not have presumes that you may tell me what to do, which you may not. So let's stop it. It is ethical. What is the court's final instruction? Yeah, on ethical. Ethical. It's fine. It's ethical. Thank you, Your Honor. Not unethical. Your Honor, this is what happens. Yes. You rule tentatively, yes. at least, rather than doing what you said, which is to listen to the court and allow the court to be the arbiter. The state of California continues to badger until the court does what the state says. I'm sorry to say that's, that's just what just happened. <clears throat> Mr. Garen, you're, you're, you've... Uh... I was going to say it in a little bit more colloquial terms. I think he just beat you down. Finally, the next morning, Judge Wyndham offered the following instruction to the jury. I did want to uh, respond to an objection at the end of the uh, defense opening uh, with regard to a statement by Mr. Durst. The interview that was conducted with Mr. Durst by Deputy District Attorney Lewin and the Los Angeles Police Department was a lawful and ethical interview. Mr. Durst participated in the interview without an attorney after being advised and waiving his rights. Also, it is worth noting that Judge Wyndham announced a shuffling of the jurors with two jurors leaving the trial. Let's see, do we move up our jurors yet? So we need, uh, so it should be alternate one should take seat six. Yeah, seat 13, we're gonna, uh, we're gonna uh, upgrade you a little bit to seat number six. Yes, please move over to number six. That helps us keep track of you. And then alternate number two and seat 14 would take seat number five. Based on Crime Story reporters' notes of the voir dire, the departing jurors are juror five, 
an Asian American male who appears to be in his 30s, works as a financial analyst, and was clear and concise in his answers during voir dire. Juror 6, a soft-spoken Asian American male, also in his mid-30s, who works in management services at a university. Juror 5 was replaced by an Asian-born male who works in software, and Juror 6 was replaced by an Asian American woman who works as a business analyst. There were also two alternate jurors who were dismissed, leaving the trial with only seven alternates. Next, we have our roundtable discussion with Charlie Bagley and Brittany Bookbinder. That's coming up right after the break. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And now to discuss the reopening statements made by the prosecution and the defense. I'm joined by journalist Charlie Bagley, who's covering the Durst trial for The New York Times and for CrimeStory.com and by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder. Charlie, I was struck by Lewin starting with all the Durst statements about the cadaver note. He didn't lead with that last time. What do you make of that? Do you think it was effective? Oh, very much so. I I think he dropped a hammer with that one, because he kept playing these clips of Bob denying that he was in Los Angeles and denying also that he wrote the so-called cadaver note. Yeah. And one other thing there, Bob went out of his way twice while being recorded to say that the person who wrote that note had to be involved in Susan's murder. He didn't have to do that. No, he didn't. And it's just another example of Bob skating so close to an admission. He said that even to his own godson. What did you think of Dick's strategy of focusing on things like Kathy's use of cocaine and the idea that the Durst's got her into medical school? I I think it's pretty risky. He painted Kathy as some sort of gold digger, drug-addled, barely able to get into med school without the help of the Durst's. It's directly contradicted by many of the students that she attended med school with, as well as the instructors. I did really enjoy getting to hear DeGaron's impression of Robert Durst. Yeah, he did get the gravelly part down, but I'm not so sure Dick DeGaron could ever convince anyone he's from New York. No, I, I don't think so. Charlie, you've heard a Bob Durst impression or two, haven't you? Oh, Yeah. Just about everyone who has spent any time with this case starts doing their own imitation. I'm talking prosecutors, defense lawyers, investigators, even reporters. Well, do you have one, Charlie, that you want to share? (laughs) Mine's not quite as good as others. I should also add to that list filmmakers. Andrew Jarecki has an excellent uh, imitation of Bob. Brittany, how do you think DeGaron's insinuations about Kathy are playing with the jury? It's hard to say what the jury is taking from it, but you know, to me, it doesn't seem true. All the witnesses who have come in so far to talk about Kathy as a student and, and her personality and her work ethic, 
they seem really credible and convincing. And the idea that she was addicted to cocaine while in school, frankly, seems like a fabrication. I'm going to ask you both um, a couple questions uh, before we conclude. What did you make of Daguerre's suggestion that Durst's clumsiness in dismembering and discarding Morris Black's body somehow suggests that he was not sophisticated enough to pull off Kathy's and Susan's murders? Well, you've got to wonder. Bob dropped the body parts of Morris Black into the bay. His hope was that the body parts would disappear. They'd end up at the bottom of the bay. And no one would have ever found Morris Black. They would have never known he was dead. They would have never been able to connect Bob to Morris Black. So in this instance, I think Bob got unlucky uh, that that the body parts washed ashore instead of falling to the bottom of the bay. Yeah, I mean, I think if we could only find out where Morris Black's head went, we'd have a lot more information to work with. I think Dick DeGarren trying to say that conveniently the one bag that didn't have body parts in it, that's where the head was and it got swept out by the tide seems awfully convenient. Okay, last question for both of you. What did you make of the back and forth about the ethics of John Lewin's interrogation of Robert Durst? Brittany? You know, if it was anybody else, I definitely think it would have seemed unethical. But Robert Durst is familiar with how this stuff works at this point. And he was invited to have his lawyers present and he turned it down. You know, if it was somebody who was less familiar with the legal system, I think that would be a very different story. And Charlie, what did you think? Well, this has been a theme since the beginning of the hearings five years ago. The defense has gone after Lewin quite a bit for interviewing Bob Durst before they could even get to New Orleans. But when people attack Lewin for his ethics or about his ethics, he springs back. And the judge has already ruled that Lewin did an ethical thing when he interviewed Bob Durst in his cell in New Orleans. Uh, Bob had not been formally charged with murder. So I think it's, it's a part of the defense trying to get under Lewin's skin, and, uh, but they always risk something happening. When they did it the first time, he responded by filing both a transcript of his interview with Bob and the video. And while they said that Bob was disoriented and off his game, cold, when you watch the video, Bob was well aware of his surroundings. He was in fine shape and he got his Miranda warning before the conversation really got started. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that dynamic plays out over the course of the trial. We'll continue to watch and bring you the latest news from the courtroom, including testimony from witnesses and the interpersonal drama between the attorneys in the case. So come back next week for the latest trial updates and for our final installment on the life of Susan Berman. Automatically receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, 
If you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1. And head over to CrimeStory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst is created and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Brittany Bookbinder is my co-host. This episode was co-produced by Alexis Bartolo and Brittany Bookbinder. Post-production and editing were handled by Jody O'Keefe. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. 